Four years ago, there was a good deal of discontent with the administration. There were many activist groups, but the only one that really meant anything was led by Rog Blake. And welcome to Spacefall, a Black 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this episode is episode 14, but we're not actually looking at an episode of Black 7. No. So welcome to our Series A special. So it became apparent very quickly when we were planning this podcast, Richard, that there were a lot of points that were very important, that were worthwhile discussion points, but either didn't fit nicely to episodes or would bog down uh, episodes focused on a, on, yeah, on a story. That's right. So we very quickly decided that at the end of each season we would have one of these specials where we could mention all these points that don't fit naturally elsewhere. Yep. But it also gives us a chance to talk about the seasons as a whole. We have a whole new set of regular segments, which are just going to be for our season specials. But to start off with, this is obviously Series A or Season 1, and we'll use those terms interchangeably. I appreciate Series A is correct, but yes. I think Season 1 is the more common <laughs> and the more natural phrase. So Richard, what's been your impression of this first series of Blake 7, having now gone back and watched the whole thing from start to finish as it was meant to be? I have to say, look, I've really, really enjoyed it. I'm old enough to remember this going out on first transmission here in Australia. It certainly made an impression on me when I first saw them. And look, Blake 7 is a show that I have kept coming back to again and again over the years. You know, I watched it when it was on TV both times. I bought the compilation tapes when they came out. I had some of the episodes on tape and I traded a few. Then I came back to it again when the real VHS tapes started coming out. Again when it appeared on cable. Again when the DVDs came out. So it says a lot that with all the TV and everything you could have watched over the years, that you keep coming back to this series again and again. And indeed, you mentioned that first time it was on cable here in Australia. Yes. That was about 15 years ago, and that was the first time I could remember us sort of watching it once a week. And, and emailing each yeah, other, we, yes. we were sending each other very, very long emails yes. uh, looking at it, and really that being the start of what has become this podcast 15 years later. Indeed, really. But I'd be honest and say, in all these rewatches, look, there are some from this season I hadn't watched for quite a while and they would be the latter part of season yeah. one that I didn't remember as being quite good. But, look, it was great watching those again too, actually. I, I have to say, and particularly now I know what sort of pressure and constraints and everything they are under, I actually think that Series A is as good as it is is really a testament to the people who worked on it, both behind and in front of the camera. Yeah, I've been very impressed by it as well, more than I expected to be. I had a really big concern when we embarked on this podcast, very similar as when we embarked on the Goodies podcast, that there would be a run of episodes, particularly in that first series, of us just going, it was bad, it was bad, it was bad, and it being very unsatisfying listening. Yes. That hasn't been the case. No, not at all. I did have some concerns, yeah, about maybe how some of it had aged, but I didn't really find that as a major problem either. This has been part of a long, long evolution of Series 1 with me. I obviously didn't see Black 7 go out on its first airing, I'm a bit younger than you. So my first experience was with the compilation tapes, and then we did some trading and the VHS tapes yeah. came out and all the rest of it. So I would have been about 13, 14 by the time I'd seen the whole series from start to finish. 
at the age of about 14, I actually had Series 1 as being the worst season of the four. Wow. As I grew older, that changed. My appreciation for it did grow, and it's, it very quickly moved up a level. But it's gone up another level again, watching it back. I've really enjoyed a lot of these. There are some very weak stories. Yes, I do think Bounty is the weakest of the start, and I think it's in the bottom <laughs> three of the series overall. Uh, it's not the worst overall. That is to come. Uh, but I think it is very, very poor. But the best are right, right up there, and overall, I've really enjoyed it. And as we've spoken about over our last couple of episodes, even something like Deliverance, something like Orac, that could have been very tedious, could have been very dull, still has interesting ideas, has great characters, and those mm. characters and that dialogue more and more is what's keeping us in the show. And yeah, I've really appreciated going back and watching these again, and I'm really looking forward to looking onto our Series 2. Yeah, okay. Before we move on, we should just make a comment about ratings here. I just want to give it a bit of a comparison here with Doctor Who, because Blake 7 obviously is very often compared to Doctor Who. Yes. Series 1 of Blake 7 went out contemporaneously with the Doctor Who stories Underworld and Invasion of Time. Right. Which averaged between 8 and 11 million viewers across them. Mm -hmm. So Blake 7 getting 9 to 10 on a regular basis was actually sitting pretty much on par with Doctor Who. Doctor Who was peaking a little higher and dipping a little lower. But overall, it was sitting very nicely within the Doctor Who figures. So I'm going to be interested to see, particularly as we get into the 80s, if there's a divergence between the Doctor and the Blake 7 ratings. I think that would certainly be true for some of season 18, I would think. I would think so. And certainly, I could imagine some of the older viewers of Doctor Who watching something like Underworld, An Invasion of Time, starting to wonder maybe whether it's time to move on from Doctor Who. (laughs) And if that was you, I would suspect Blake 7 would be absolutely perfectly pitched. Hmm. We've spoken a lot about the individual episodes over the last 13 episodes of this podcast. Richard, you have some comments on the actual background of the whole season. We do. I'll start by saying, look, there are better resources than us around how Blake 7 was commissioned and how it was made and all the production details. I agree. If you want a very technical outlook at Blake 7, there are technical resources to do that. We're here more to have that love and opinion. Indeed. I will, again, and this is becoming a weekly thing, so I think we'll just put a blanket mention of the Making Blake 7 Twitter feed, and I think we'll just do that at the start of every episode. (laughs) If you haven't checked it out, it is great. Go and look at it. The chap running that has a lot of detail on behind the scenes of the series. But there is that quite famous story of Terry Nation sitting in Ronnie Marsh's office at the head of programs at BBC and coming up with this idea of the Dirty Dozen in space yeah. when none of his other ideas have <laughs> gone down that well. I think it's reasonably common knowledge that Blake Seven replaced a police show, Softly Softly Task Force, in the BBC's scheduling. That means it inherited Softly Softly Task Force's budget, which perhaps wasn't great, and certainly not for a sci-fi show. No. But perhaps more importantly, it inherits the program scheduling given the size and whatever of the BBC, that had been allocated by the BBC months in advance. So this is your scheduling, this is the resources that you get. And there is a lot of problem, obviously, with filming Blake 7 in that sort of slot, because, I mean, police shows don't have a lot of special effects. 
Yep. They want to do location filming. They obviously go to wherever it is a police drama is set. They're not trying to go to different parts of Britain to, to recreate alien planets and that sort of thing. I mean, they're just a completely different animal to make. Yeah, you have a large number of standard sets, you being the police station, yeah. and yeah, otherwise you're just going under the streets of London, not pretty in worlds. No, pretty much. The other thing with it is, at that time, Softly, Softly Task Force was made using a system called strike filming, which is basically that the sets are struck, as in pulled down, set up, and broken down each week and reassembled as required. And again, the sets really, you're right, for a police station, they're probably nowhere near as detailed as something like the flight deck of the Liberator. Yeah. It's a very big set. It's a very heavy set. It's quite a complex set to put together. It's got a lot of moving parts and, and stuff. To, Especially to when you look work. at those chairs and those consoles. Yeah. You know, they clearly by the end of the series have been moved around quite a lot. And looking yes, at and, and you can, when you see close-ups of parts of the set, you can see, you know, the scuff marks clearly where it's been kicked around the studio floor and whatever. Yeah. The set gets a bit of an overhaul and a redress for Series 2. Mm-hmm. And from Series 2 onwards, the show is made using what's called block filming, which is that you have a couple of episodes in production at a time, so you can just put the Liberator set up, film all the scenes that you want to do for the next two or three weeks in the Liberator set, and then you can break that set down, put it away, and then keep recording until you need it again. It's a lot easier, it's a lot more efficient, and it obviously saves on a lot of wear and tear. Yes, and it is, however, a lot more demanding in terms of studio time, because as long as there's a Liberator set up in a studio, no other program can use it. No. We have talked a fair bit during this about the pressure and the time pressure that the cast and crew are under. And it is really a case there is less and less production time and lead time for them, particularly once the series starts going to air. They only have up to seclicate destroy it in the can before they start screening it. Yes. So it does really become a bit of a scramble to get those last seven done. We mentioned during ORAC, I think it was finished only two or three days before it was actually due to go to air. Which is um, an incredible pace. And we've spoken about the goodies, for example, doing that. At least they would just point the camera at three guys running around. And there are instances where you've got at least three episodes in production under different directors at the same time. So they're doing overrun and pick up sequences for last week's episode. They're trying to rehearse this week's episode. And then you've got cast members being pulled out to do location filming for next week's episode. Yeah. And that goes on really right across the series, which puts a huge strain on the actors. You do also obviously have the problem with budget. Star Wars opens in the UK in December 77 or January 78, depending on where you are which obviously is precisely when Blake 7 is first going to air. Yep. And the production team aren't really aware of this. They do get some extra money out of the BBC, but look, it's never enough. And that's why you have a lot of those effect sequences are reused. Is it true, do we know, that legend about Blake 7 that large amounts of the special effects budget were just blown on the Liberator in the first episode Uh, and they had to get extra to do the others? Pretty much. SFX is a big area of frustration really, for the series. And the guys working on SFX, which is led by Ian Schoons, they are incredibly frustrated because there is this feeling that they're not being allowed to showcase their full capabilities because of the just sheer time and budget pressure that the show is under to get it in the can and get it made. They go and film all these incredibly complicated and beautifully lit model shots, but the directors don't have time to go through them all. They don't have time to really sit down and go through the SFX requirements properly and allow them the time to actually construct these things to make them look really, really good. Because Ian Schoons feels Blake 7 could have been a real special effects vehicle. Yeah. And probably do what could have been really quite effective stuff for small screen television if they had more time and resources. Well, you see, when they do have that time, and when they are able to nail it, they nail mm. it really, really well. The city in the way back is phenomenally yes. good. The Liberator itself is phenomenally good. Yes, we're both obviously Doctor Who fans. And I mean, you do see in Doctor Who, when they've got the time and everything to do it right, some of the model effects in, in this and in Doctor Who and, and other productions are really amazing. Yes. 
And yes, money is a problem. And yes, he does spend pretty much the entire season's allocated budget, I think, on the first episode or two. Yeah. And that sort of has to go for more money. And again, that's why, you know, you see those same shots of those three pursued ships in the same formation all the time. At the end of it, he does write a fairly scathing report to BBC management about what he thinks of the shortcomings of this. There is a copy of it, and again, on Making Blake 7, <laughs> ScorpioAttack.com, which is the website that underpins the mm-hmm. Twitter feed. There is a copy of that memo on there. And interestingly enough, the BBC's reaction is, he never works on the series again. No, as is the case with a couple of directors. Yes. Who sent very similar reports and were just moved off the show. Yes, basically. Although, in fairness, and you see this when we get to season two, they actually all get their way. Mm. in that season two does have more time and more money and more yes, budget. Yes, it does. So a few things in series one I just sort of wanted to talk about. And these are things that, as I say, are series-wide or don't fit in. The first thing is, just how good are the opening credits and the opening theme for this show? Yes, it's got incredibly distinctive music. Yeah, so Dudley Simpson writes the opening credits. Yeah, now I think this was a bit unusual because usually he would write the music and then they would sort of fit the credits around it. Whereas this, I think he was just given the opening credit sequence and writes a music for that, wasn't it? Yeah, so I've actually been fortunate enough to meet Dudley Simpson. I saw him at a convention here in Melbourne in 1990, (laughs) believe it or not. So he had several panels across the course of the weekend. One was entirely based on Doctor Who. Yep. And the other one, he talked about his other work, and he did some really nice stuff where he brought along a telly movie, showed us a few minutes of that without the music, and said, right, so what I would do is this, this, and this. Right. Now let me play it with the music, and you see the difference it makes. And then he talked about Blake Seven, and yes, he said... He actually got quite irate when they said, right, this is the big series. We're going to get you to do most of the music for it, uh, including the score. Here are the opening graphics. And he's like, you realise it's a lot easier to design opening graphics to fit music than like music the other way around. <laughs> and they're like, well, sorry, they're done now. We're uh, not doing it again, obviously. Yeah, so, and that's why you see a lot of the music scores are very, very carefully crafted to match the graphics and often it's sort of half a second off here and there for the first series yeah okay but yeah no he did do that and uh, look Dudley Simpson was a really lovely guest he talked very much about his craft he was very relaxed and there was one fun moment when he was sitting there had a keyboard in front of him for the last panel and a few things were being a bit delayed and a couple of the other guests weren't there and he just started playing the Blake 7 theme (laughs) to keep everybody happy that would be great yeah so that was pretty cool yes that that was the way it's done the music is phenomenally good I love that theme and the graphics as well just all those sets of images you know Blake's face he's being tortured the eliminate the security camera it really does tell a little story yes I think they're incredibly effective and look obviously and again we're leaping forward they do move away from them later in the series yeah and I would have to say I don't think either of the two they come up with later are anywhere near as good I'm kind of fond of one of them, but they're not nearly as interesting or narratively based. Dudley Simpson does do the music for 50 out of 52 of Blake Seven's episodes, yep, including 12 out of 13 of Series 1. Yes, we did talk about that when we did Duel. And again, what I've noticed going back and watching these for the podcast is just how many themes he puts together and how quickly he does it. I mean, we always were aware of that Liberator Sting, which is that opening credit yep. for Sting, or his wonderful teleport music. Yes. Do, 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 do. Yes. Yeah, probably that lone note on the xylophone, I think, <laughs> afterwards that probably adds the kick to it, but yeah. <laughs> Dudley Simpson does develop a really good house style for Black Seven, mm. but also allows for differentiation in the different episodes. Mission to Destiny was one where I caught that out. It's been really effective. Yeah. But yeah, he does some great work in that one. As do the model people, as we've said. And look, you look across the course of this, you've got the London model, 
mm-hmm. Liberator model, the Pursuit ships. Pursuit ships are never filmed really well, mm. as you were alluding to before, but they're really cool models. They are. Unfortunately, a lot of the video effects, just there is not the money or the technology at the time. I don't think there are any laser beams in this. So the Federation have that little explosion. No, they thing have the flash charge in, yeah. at the end of the... And the Liberator guns just light up. There isn't that sort of death ray sort no. of thing. No, and I think actually with the Federation guns, because some of the original props are circulating, I think there were working and non-working props. And there is, I think, one or two that actually had the flash thing and the guards had to share them, sort of. (laughs) (laughs) Gareth Thomas, I think, did actually make the point, I think a lot of Liberator guns broke as well. And again, there was sort of by the end of the series, there's only one that worked. (laughs) (laughs) And they had to share it around. Yeah, that's unfortunate. But speaking of the Federation guards, again, given that they are in the first episode... Mm. That iconic design of the suit, the helmet, yep. the gun, again, that lasts all the way through yes, the series. Yes, it does. For that to be evident in episode one mm. and be so effective is really, really important. And a lot of these visual things, as you say, where they got the time and the money, they do a really good job. Yes, they do. It's just obvious they don't always have that. Can we mention the teleport effect as well? Which mm. I don't know if it's a bit cheesy now, but I always loved it as a kid. That idea of you know physically sort of watching when they teleported down... You could sort of watch them be dissolved. Yeah. And then you had that little outline that yeah. comes in and, sort of, and then those all sort of put in together. Okay, it's a cheesy special effect, but it really conveys the idea of what the teleport is. Yeah, and I think like behind that, AJ Mitchell, he actually got to the point, he got good enough with that, he could do it on the fly, basically. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do remember reading at one point, the people who did Trek, and including Next Gen, mm. actually said they'd wish they'd gone down that path because they did it with a much more filmic effect. Yeah. And it took hours of production yeah, to Whereas Blake 7, yeah, as you say, it got really good. But even the bit where they're teleporting up from the planet, yep. and you know, so you get the stencil outline and then it, it bursts out. Okay, it's cheesy and it's cheap, but it conveys that idea of what's going on. Yeah, the big the flare. Yeah. yeah, I thought it was quite a good effect. Speaking of teleport, one of the things that I think we've really teased out over Series 1 has been the use of sci-fi elements that perhaps I hadn't appreciate it as well there's a lot of episodes that really do use quite different and interesting harder sci-fi elements in this sort of fantasy one but at the same time it doesn't fall back on that really hardcore trek style tropes Mm. one thing we notice for example is that there isn't that sense of every planet has a name and a designation and really analytical stuff to the point that for example the planet in project avalon doesn't even get named the planet in bounty is not named no that's true Mm. The final point that I had to make before we move into our regular segments, I don't know if you've got some others, Richard, but I just wanted to reiterate something that I mentioned in the Deliverance episode, which is watching as the series goes on, you can actually feel the Terry Nation influence waning or, or diminishing as he's just trying to get scripts out. Yes. But you feel the Chris Boucher influence growing as he gets more confident, as he gets more involved. And frankly, as he's got to pick up more of the slack. Yes. So it goes from something like The Way Back, where it's a really finished, polished script, and all he's doing is a bit of tidying mm. up, to by the time he gets to Deliverance, where he is sort of almost a co-writer, and he's putting his stamp on the style and the dialogue, and um, that really comes across by the end. Yeah, and I think where you really see that is in the... And we did probably mention this during both Deliverance and Orac. You do see that in the character interactions. And I really think that is Chris Boucher's stamp. And particularly, I think, with Villa and with Avon. Yeah. That is very much, I think, Chris Boucher. Yeah, and that's another point. I didn't have it down, but now you've mentioned it, let's explore it a little bit. It is very obvious that by the time they've got to the end of Series 1, 
not only have they worked out who they think is working, but the audience has also had a chance to give feedback on who they think is working. Very much so. When we were talking about breakdown, I think breakdown was the point, I think, where the series turns its back on Gang because they have worked out who the breakout characters are and unfortunately none of them are Gang. No, it's very much Avon, it's very much Villa. Yes. I was actually quite surprised. I thought Jenna did more in Series 1 than she does. Mm. I'll be looking to see if that memory is maybe because she has a bit more in Series 2. I don't know if that's the case. I'm just misremembering completely. I'm, I'm going to be looking at Jenna's character quite no, interestingly. No, and we might come back to that in a minute because there is probably a discussion point around Sally Nevet. But this is probably the Blake Seven you remember from later in the series is those character interactions. Yeah. And just talking about the characters that they want to concentrate on and yet again, another plug for the Scorpio attack site and the making Blake Seven Twitter, there is a copy on there. Terry Nation wrote his thoughts as to how he thought season one had progressed and how he thought the characters were developing and how he thought the storylines would go. And there is a copy of it up on that site. And he really has identified the characters he thinks are quite strong. And Avon really is the one that he singles out that he thinks is working brilliantly. Thank you, Chris Boucher. Yes. Um, Serverland is another, and indeed Travis. But you sort of come down the other end where he feels that even Blake really can be replaced if necessary. The one, unfortunately, really at the bottom of his list is Gan and Callie. Yeah, I was interested when I read that to see that, particularly with the audience, Callie was growing almost equally as lowly as Gan. Yes. The other one, Terry Nation, was not particularly taken with was Villa. Mm. And that seems to be more, though, that obviously what Michael Keating is getting out of the part is very different from what Terry Nation felt it should be. Yeah. Which is quite interesting, because I actually think Villa is really probably one of the stronger characters. Again, I think probably in the second half of Series 1, perhaps when you have Chris Boucher writing for him. Villa is a character that you wouldn't normally expect in a show like Blake Seven. Mm. You cannot imagine Villa turning up in Star Trek. No. You could almost struggle to imagine him turning up in something like Babylon 5. And probably the closest they have to him in terms of his sort of vibe, although they're very different characters, would be Marcus. Yeah. And Marcus is very clearly not a part of Babylon 5. He's an outsider. He's one of the Rangers. Yes. And so he gets to have that very British, witty humour. I mean, even though he's got very different characters, he's not a coward in the way Villa is. But yeah, you can't imagine Villa in a lot of other series. And I can get Terry Nation as a very traditional sci-fi writer sort of going, this isn't kind of what we do. No. When we get into the next series and they're talking about characters they could move on, and whatever. Villa is one that comes up for discussion. I think it's vetoed quite quickly by David Maloney and Chris Boucher. Yeah. But, yeah. Now, we did mention Sally Nevet a minute ago. By the time we get to the end of the season, she is really unhappy mm. with how Jenna is developing. I have read a couple of interviews with her where apparently she did go into the production office a couple of times. You know, you wrote me these really strong episodes earlier, now I'm just operating the teleport. Well, you know, I need to be rescued. I want some better material, basically. Yeah. And she felt that they really just fobbed her off. Yes, yes, it'll come. Yes, we'll write you some better stuff. They do sort of do the perhaps token thing in Project Avalon where they make her the person who's met Avalon and she goes down to the planet, not Callie. But she really gets to the point, she wants to leave at the end of the first series and seeks to go out. Now, unfortunately for her, the BBC had an option on all the regulars' contracts for the second season. So, of course, it very much became a case, well, no, we're going to exercise our option on your contract and if you want to work next year, you're making Black 7. Yeah. And I think we perhaps will see the progression of that across the next season. Yeah, as I said before, Jenna's a character I'm going to be really watching to see what mm. they do with their next series. So, now that we've had a bit of a general discussion about Series A, mm -hmm. we'll move into our season regular segments. 
Now, we start each regular segment on our episodes with looking at the guest cast. Yes. What we're going to do on these specials is we're going to pick three members of the regular cast each season yep. and have a bit of a look at what they've done in the past. So, we've got three for Series 1, and the first of them is Gareth Thomas, who, of course, played Blake. I think it's very well known to most fans that Gareth Thomas had a Royal Shakespeare Company background. Yes. And I think that, as we've alluded to many times in our conversations, that Shakespearean serious dialogue background is what I think makes Blake work. And Blake, I think, would struggle if he'd been done by a less formidable actor. Yeah, I think that's fair. So, look, he has got a lot of work. His very first screen work was in a production for TV of Romeo and Juliet in 1966. Right. He was in an episode of The Avengers, which was called Murdersville. He's in two episodes of Zed Cars. He has a part as uh, Lord Charles Beresford in the drama Edward VII. Which is one of those big sort of costume dramas. It was, it was, it was, it was ITV's big answer to the BBC costume dramas. Yep. When they were doing stuff like Elizabeth R. and The Six Wives of Henry VIII, oh. they did Edward VII. Children of the Stones, which is a phenomenally cool, notionally children's TV series, but... That is a really freaky series. Like, like most kids' TV, it's actually not made for kids. Yeah, like yeah. particularly in the 70s, and there's no way you'd yeah. do it today. He was in three plays for today. Uh, he was in The Knights of God. Oh, yes. Another series <laughs> that just is very much of its time and you would not make today. He turns up later in six episodes of Heartbeat. I do remember Heartbeat being on, but I think I'd obviously moved on by that point. He was in an episode of the Doctor Who spin-off Torchwood. His last on-screen credit is an episode of Holby City in... 2011 mm-hmm. and sadly he departed this world in 2016 yeah i know he'd been unwell for a little while i think before he passed away but uh, i yes. do remember that was a big deal yeah he certainly was not old no i do remember seeing him in a few things post blake seven by the sword divided which was the civil war costume drama yep uh, he was also in an episode of sherlock holmes i went through a bit yes. of a, um, a sherlock holmes rewatch yes. probably some years ago now that's the jeremy brett version mm, that's right and another series i i watched I do remember it being on television when I was very young, but I didn't watch it until some years later. Landmark BBC series called The Fight Against Slavery. It's not really a docudrama, although it is introduced and there is some narration work through it. It's sort of a proto-docudrama. Yes, but it is a dramatisation, really, of the abolitionists and Mm. the fight in Britain during the early part of the 19th century around ending the slave trade. Okay. He plays a chap called Thomas Clarkson, who is the gentleman who actually goes onto the slaving ships and actually talks to people who are involved in the slave trade, finds the deplorable conditions that the slaves, how the slaves are being treated. Some of the shipmasters set out to silence him, and he's chased through the streets by a gang of thugs led by Leslie Schofield. <laughs> oh, lovely. That's about three or four years, I think, before Blake Seven. Okay. So there you go. But yes, that's some other stuff I've seen him in. Our second regular actor for Series One is David Jackson, who played mm. Gan. So his first screen work is playing the role of Foolish Soldier in The True Misery of Passion in 1960. Right. Now, he again has quite a bit of work. He's in 14 episodes of The Larkins, playing Lofty, which was right. probably the character he was most well-known for before Blake Seven. Right, okay. Two episodes of The Saint, four episodes as a recurring role in The Pretenders. He's a voice of an alien in Space 1979 on three episodes. <laughs> I think he's actually physically in one of them. He's physically in one, but not recognisable, and he's a voice yeah. in the other two, yeah. He's in an episode of The Two Runnies. Right, And I okay. don't recall that at all, but he is in there. In background cast, obviously. Yep. Yeah. 27 episodes of Zed Cars. Yeah. Later on in the 80s, he was also in Return of the Antelope with Derek Farr. Four episodes of Minder. I do remember seeing him in Minder. Yeah. And I think it's in the later ones, I think. I think so, yeah. Hey, it's Gan! <laughs> but, uh, I do actually also remember he was in Edge of Darkness, mid-80s as well, which is the Bob mm. Peck. Nuclear thriller. And his final screen role is in Lovejoy in 1994. Oh, yeah. 
And he sadly died. He was the first regular to die in 2005. Yes. Again, I do remember that being reasonable news at the time. Yes, but for somebody who has a very minor role in Black 7 and mm. not always the best, uh, yeah, very long and successful career. We did say this during breakdown. I think when Gan is given something to do in Black 7, yes. he is really good. Yeah, it's very easy to underestimate him given the material he's given in there. Yeah, he is actually really quite a good actor. Mm. And well, he was in work for 45 years. So, yeah. Yeah. The final regular we're going to look at on this occasion, and I think we kind of have to for series one, <laughs> is Stephen Greif as Travis. His first screen credit is in Boy Meets Girl, one episode of that in 1967. Okay. He's in The Persuaders, Nicholas and Alexandra, oh, which was yes. a big drama at the time. Yes, it was. I think we made the point it's now probably best known as introducing the world to Tom Baker. Yes. But yes. Uh, he was in the Treasure Island miniseries in 1977. One of the more amusing ones that I found, he's in an episode of The Famous Five, which ah. is uh, the episode Five Have a Wonderful Time. Right, alongside Gary Russell. Alongside Gary Russell, that's right. <laughs> Twelve episodes of Citizen Smith. Oh, yes, he was. He played the local minor criminal. In some ways, he was sort of the comedy relief character, really. Mm. But uh, yes, I do remember Citizen Smith, and I do remember him in Citizen Smith. The Last Days of Pompeii? Yes. Now... I was actually going to make a joke here. Unfortunately, it's post Blake 7 because he's in this with another young actor called Brian Croucher. (laughs) (laughs) And they do have scenes together. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. There's an episode of One by One, which was a lovely little zoo-based drama for a while in the 80s. Oh, yes, I do remember that. That was the bloke who gets tricked into working at the zoo. Yeah, and gets mauled by a lion at one point. Yes, that's right. He's a vet. And the practice he takes over, he actually gets tricked because he has to support the local zoo. That's the one. Yes, I do remember that. Yeah, he was in that. He was a wine connoisseur slash criminal in Rumpole of the Bailey. <laughs> Drop the Dead Donkey. Yep. He was in a really cool episode of The Bill as uh, Assistant Commissioner Lampierre. Oh, yes. That's, that's, uh, that's the one the, where they bring Burnside back. The one back. where they bring yes, Burnside that's right. back. That's yes, right, yes. Burnside Superior, yes. I yes, yes I he's in that. the Adolf Eichmann program. And no. I can't give you his last screen credit because he is still working. Yes, he's done quite a bit of RSC work yeah. uh, as well. And I think he does a lot of voice work. I think now he does more voice work than anything else. Yeah, so look, he has got a career of over 50 years. Yeah. And a lot of really diverse work. So they're the three regulars we're looking at on this yes. occasion. We're also going to look at one member of the production team oh, yes. for each series. And for series one, we are going to talk about Terry Nation, yeah. who, of course, gave us Terry Nation's Blake 7. Yes, indeed. Very important to make sure it's Terry Nation's, Nation's Blake, Blake 7. 7. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, look, Terry Nation was very much a hack writer in the, in the genuine sense of the word, somebody who made a career just churning out. Yes, yeah, some, somebody who could guess. I mean, Hack now, I think, probably has a... A majority of commentation, but... Yeah, yeah, it does. But in those days, it really was somebody who could quite quickly turn around a workable script for television. Yeah, so if you needed somebody to do work on a soap or a drama or a sci-fi, yep. he would just churn out what was needed and, and yes. do it well. Yeah. Yeah, that's very much where he made his mark. His first writing credit was on a TV show called The Idiot Weekly, Price Two Pence, which was in 1956. Right. And he actually did a lot of that sort of satirical type work. He did some work with Hancock. That was where, in the industry, he kind of made his mark, his work with Hancock. That was a big deal at the time. And, of course, quite famously, his split with Tony Hancock led to probably his greatest creation. Yes. He also wrote for stuff like The Baron, The Saint. He does seven episodes of The Persuaders, six episodes of The Avengers. Well, I think he was the script editor for the last season, if I remember rightly. Most famously, of course, and probably his really big breakout, is he's the creator of The Daleks in 1963, which, of course, led to multiple work on Doctor Who, a number of Dalek-based stories right through the 60s and 70s, plus a couple of others, um, The Adrian Invasion, The Keys of Marinus. Films. The two Dalek films, of course, Doctor Who and the Daleks and Dalek Invasion of Earth 2150 AD. That's right. He was the creator of the TV series Survivors in 1975, 
where he famously lost control of that to the producer Terence Dudley. Dudley. Yes. yes, and indeed, I think that is part of the reason why he was so focused on keeping control of Blake Seven. And this it is was. Terry Nation's Blake Seven because he wasn't going to get screwed over like that again. Yeah, and you really do see if you ever sit down and somehow manage to watch all the survivors from start to finish, <laughs> the first series is very not sci-fi, but it's got those harder-edged yep. elements. There's still about the virus, the survivors the different people trying to take control of Britain. Like, you know, yep. you meet the union official who suddenly decides he's in charge and the people who want to just, you know, have forced breeding stuff and yep. all that sort of stuff. Then you sort of get to where Terence Dudley takes control and it's all about sitting down and growing lettuces. <laughs> <laughs> and he's actually quite hard to watch, I'm sorry to say. But yeah, he did create that. He was a writer and a producer on MacGyver over in America in 1985. Yeah, in the late 70s, he up and moved to California. Yes, and had some success there. MacGyver is a particular one. He died in 1997. I remember that being big news when it happened. Yeah, well, we were both reactive in Doctor Who fans yes. at the time, and so yeah, that was a big yeah. deal. And I wanted to sort of mention here, because he has had that involvement in Doctor Who, particularly with the Daleks, there is a lot of material out there in terms of interviews with him, both written mm. and filmed. And he talks a lot about his view really being about the imagination mm. and about the creativeness of writing. So one of his most famous interviews, he says... If you want to invent a planet and on that planet the rocks talk, they do because that's your planet. And that's very much his view that, yep. well, if you want something to happen and it's your world, well, it happens. It happens. Yeah. You, know, you can be as creative and inventive as you want and the rules don't apply because it's sci-fi and it's fantasy and you can do whatever you want. Yeah. I think we need to finish by saying he was notoriously protective of his work. Yes, very and, much And so. the rights to his work. Not just from a monetary point of view, although he got a lot of criticism for that, but I think generally from a creative point of view... You only got to use the Daleks if you're going to use them correctly. You yes. only got to do Black Seven stuff if it was going to be the right quality. Yeah, there is that famous thing, yeah, nobody screwed Terry. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so our next regular segment is a light-hearted one. Where, for those of you who are old enough to remember, back in the 1990s, all of Blake 7 came out on VHS. And these VHS tapes all had wonderful commissioned artwork covers. And what we're going to do is just go back and look at these ones on the series and give them a yay or a nay as being either awesome or embarrassingly bad. Before we get on to the unedited videotapes, we need to just mention the three compilation tapes we've talked about so yes. far, which is The Beginning, Jewel and Orac all of which have very simple covers with the Liberator on them, which I have to admit, though, when I first saw these in the video shop, they were very striking. Yes. Yeah. Even though on the first one, there are flames coming out the back of the weapons pods. Yes, true. When Roger Murray-Leach showed the Liberator design that they were going to go with, most people actually thought it went the other way. The green glow was at the front. Yeah, I've never understood that. But, yes, it does have the flames out of it. But, look, there's a couple of nice photos at the back from, what have we got, Cygnus Alpha and Time Squad. Yes. Hmm. But moving on to the unedited tapes, the first is Volume 1, The Way Back in Spacefall, yes. which has a lovely evocative picture of Blake's face and the dome. I think that's definitely a pass. I enjoy that one. Yep. yep. Volume 2, Cygnus Alpha and Time Squad, which is all about a Federation trooper with the Liberator in the background and a bit of uh, Cygnus Alpha. That's, that's okay. Sort of Pamela Salem. Yep. Yeah, no, that's all right. Volume 3, The Web and Seek Locate Destroy. The picture of the Liberator is quite good. The picture of the Decima is... Um, 
not something that says, pick me up and buy me. The picture of the Liberator and Tatal on the web is what they were going for. Yes. Yeah, it probably doesn't really come across quite like that on screen. But... No, it's actually better than what's on screen, Yeah, it is actually. And the unfortunate problem with this cover is that a lovely image of Space Command is two-thirds obscured by the <laughs> two complete unedited episodes banner. And I do have to mention just to this point, a lot of these VHS tapes do have, for example... Parts of the episodes on this video were included in Blake 7 Jewel, so you wouldn't feel ripped off if you bought the yeah, compilation. Right. <laughs> uh, volume 4 is Mission to Destiny and Jewel, which I really like. It's got those wonderful pursuit ships and a big picture of Travis and the statue from yeah, the I was going to say, it's not really about Mission to Destiny, is it? No, that's really just the cover for Jewel, really. It is, really, yes, it is. <laughs> that's definitely a pass. Volume 5, Project Avalon Breakdown. Well, it's a swirly thing. It's a great big swirly thing. If you look really, really closely, you can actually see the Liberator deep inside there. Oh, oh, it is too. There you go. (laughs) And the XK-72, that's probably a fail. It's not really about Project Avalon at all, really. No, no, that's not one of the better ones. No, that probably is a fail. Yes, I'd agree with that. Now, a 25-year question here, Richard. Volume 6, Bounty Deliverance. Who's that? (laughs) I've wondered for 25 years. It's meant to be Paul Darrow, isn't it? I think it's meant to be, but it's... Yeah, Yeah. it's not a particularly good rendition of him, no. No, it's not. It does have a really nice picture of Cephalon and the Space Master ship and the castle from Bounty, but it looks nothing like Avon. No, not really. So that's a fail? Yeah, I've got to give that one a fail. (laughs) And our final VHS for Season 1, which of course goes over into Season 2, is Volume 7 with Orac and Redemption, which... Has a better picture of the Fibian than we ever got on screen. Well, I was going to say, the only real mention there of Warak really is a picture of Aristo and the Fibian. Yep, but it's got a great thing there of all the elements from Redemption we'll talk about. That's a really cool cover, though. Yeah, I like that one. I like that one. Yeah, no, look, I get very nostalgic for these uh, old VHS tapes and their artwork covers. I think they have a lot more love than the modern ones. Sadly, mine are long gone, so... Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm very, very glad I've got copies of those. Our next regular segment is we're going to give a top three and a bottom three episodes from the season yep so richard you can go first for your top three all right what have you got from season one you can probably blame this from how effusive i was about it when we talked about it my pick for the season is spacefall yeah i thought it might be yeah i really really like spacefall it's a great story everything in there really works i think there's a great guest performance from leslie schofield i think actually all the regulars are pretty good I just think that is a great episode, which is quite surprising considering it's the first one they filmed. Yes, yeah, yeah, that is really good. Second one I picked was Project Avalon. Yes. And again, we sort of did flag that was probably the high watermark, I think, certainly in the second half of Series 1. And the last one, I'm sort of torn. Really, it'd be a choice between probably The Way Back or Duel. Okay. I think for my third. And I'm probably going to go with Duel. Purely and simply, I really like The Way Back. I think it is a great piece of television. But... Unfortunately, I think on reflection, and it's perhaps something we didn't really touch on, the way back is fairly atypical of how the rest of the series pans out. I think so great in all this it is, it's what we see after that really doesn't quite fit with what we see in the way back in a lot of ways. So I'll probably go with Duel. Okay, look, I have a very similar list. And I figured that was yep. going to be the case. I'll probably have Project Avalon at the top. Right. I have Space Floor number two. <laughs> like you, I really wasn't sure what to do with that third slot. Being fair, I probably have to give it to the way back. Right. Because it is a very, very wonderful piece of television. Yep. But if I could have a couple of sort of sympathetic nominations in there, both The Web and Mission to Destiny, I really mm-hmm. like. I accept they're probably not deserving of being top three, but as personal yep. stories no, I really I like, that. I think they deserve a mention. But yeah, look, I'm not shocked. I kind of thought they would be our yep. respective top three. So yep. that's fine. Interested to hear listener feedback on those. Actually, if yep. listeners want to send in their top three, they would be quite interested to hear those. Yeah, very much so. Bottom three? 
I guess I'll go first. Yeah, righto. Look, no shocks. Bounty's my number one. Yep. Equally no shocks. Breakdown is number two. <laughs> number three, I probably have to go with Time Squad. Right. I do that reluctantly because it did go up in my estimation watching it again and there is some good stuff there. But I think we did flag it was probably the weakest of the initial four. So Yeah, it does in the end have extras in nappies grunting and some quite <laughs> slow stuff on the planet. I will simply say, look, I don't reconcile from it at all. I think Bounty and Breakdown yep. are the two weakest. The fact that Time Squad is coming in as the third bottom, I think actually is reflective of how strong the season is overall. Yep. Okay. What about you, Richard? I clearly I think we flagged. I got a bit more out of breakdown than you did. I actually was quite tempted just to go Bounty, Deliverance, and Orac. <laughs> actually, <laughs> for my last three, because I think there is, and I know we've talked about the pressure and everything, but Bounty, I really didn't get much out of at all. And look, I know we found that a bit of a difficult discussion. So, yes, that would be my pick for the weakest of the series. I find Deliverance and Orac, look, they are very obviously two-parter, as we said during the discussion. I just found them rather padded, probably in places a bit superfluous. I actually was going to have an honourable mention of Mission to Destiny, and I know that's one of your personal favourites, and I know when we discussed it, you got a lot more out of it than I did. No, that's fine. And I don't know whether it's just watching it 40 years on, or as we said during the discussion, look, once you sort of know who done it, there's really not a lot to keep your interest, coming back for repeat viewings. I don't know, that just didn't really work for me. But, but that's fair, because I mean, in the same way that Deliverance I got a lot out of, and you yep. clearly didn't. And sometimes these things just yeah. quite they don't. There is a feeling, I think, across certainly the first probably two-thirds of the season that they are doing something different and they are really trying to be different and trying to do something new and quite bold and tell a different sort of story. I just think by the time we get into the last bit of Series 1, it's just a case I think they're kind of a bit spent. That's well, look, I totally agree. and We spoke about it at the time. Project Avalon is, I think we agreed, the high point mm. of the series. Yeah. It's a build-up to it, yep. and then there's a steep decline afterwards. Yeah. How the individual ones land for you is yeah. maybe a personal opinion. And as you say, I'd be interested to see what our listeners say. I mean, we've experienced before, I remember a few months ago with the Goodies Pirate podcast, we both slammed the episode Holiday and were then Almost bombarded so. by people telling us how good it was. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it is all subjective. Hmm. So I'll let you go first on our next segment here, Richard, which is not our player of the week, but our player of the season. So who it is in season one that you think deserves the best on field? This was quite difficult because I think at different points in the season, most of the regular cast and most of the production team get moments to shine. Yeah, well, almost all the regulars and production team have had at least a nomination for one of us. So look, there are lots of honourable mentions, but my choice would be one of... And I'm probably looking forward into the series from here. So my choice would probably be one of Servalan or Avon. Mm-hmm. Probably because this really is laying the foundation for the roles they'll play in the series going forward. I don't think I'm really being too spoilerish by saying that. So it would be one of them. I'll, I'll put the acid on you. Which are you going to go for? I'll probably go for Avon purely simply because he's got more to do. Yeah. I would give a very strong honourable mention to Servalan because I'd really forgotten probably just how good Jacqueline Pierce was in these. Yeah, yeah. And she really does hit the ground running. Yes. Uh, she's only in four episodes, and a couple of those really are only a couple of scenes. But I actually think she really makes an impression from the word go. 
So there we go. What are yours? Well, let me start by saying I don't disagree with anything you've said. They're both very worthy yep. nominees. My runner-up was Stephen Greif as Travis. Yep. I, again, was really impressed by how much he takes out of that role, how seriously he takes it, how much mm-hmm. gravity he puts into it. But I have to give my player of the season to Gareth Thomas as Blake. He makes this series work. He has a huge amount of depth in his performance. He takes episodes and scenes and ideas that could be campy or silly and makes mm. them utterly dramatic and utterly serious. Because, yeah, and, and I know we did say that, particularly I think in the way back, thinking back to the discussion there, he really has bought into what is going on here. Yeah, I think this series wouldn't have worked without him as the linchpin in this yeah. first part. And yeah, so I'm giving him my player of the season. There you go. Excellent. We're now going to get into some listener emails. Now, without going too much into our how we make the sausage here, we will just say that putting these podcasts together is quite a labour of love, but it is quite yes. an intensive project. So we actually don't have a regular, you know, record, edit, record, edit schedule. We record quite a way ahead and then edit them as we can. Yep. Which means that we decided not to do listener feedback every episode because it would all be just weeks out of sync. Yeah. So we've saved a number of emails for our season specials, and this is the first time. So our first comes from friend of the podcast, Doc Hume. He is one of the four faces of delusion behind the Doctor Diddly Dumb podcast. I do encourage you to check that one out, because uh, although it is basically a Doctor Who podcast, they stray into a lot of the TV series that we know and love. So shout out to Doc from Diddly Dumb. And he says, Dear Dave and Richard, your podcast reviewing Serverland's debut in Seek, Locate, Destroy set me thinking about the structure of the Federation. I've never thought that Space Command, Serverland's gang on her space station, was a sort of SS or an elite. I think it's much simpler than that. The President is the head of the civilian government and or head of state, while Serverland is the head of the Federation's armed forces under the President. Or, more likely, she's the head of the Federation's navy, i.e. its space fleet. With the Federation covering a large amount of space, its space fleet must necessarily be by far the strongest element of the Federation's armed forces. I see Serverland's position as Supreme Commander a bit like the First Lord of the Admiralty in the UK. Sounds very splendid and military, but actually it was a post invariably held by a politician and a member of the Cabinet, and, under the Prime Minister, was the political head of the Royal Navy, to whom all the Admirals answered. For example, Churchill was First Lord of the Admiralty at the start of World Wars I and II, Presumably, Serverland's role was so powerful and, being based on her space station so far removed physically from the rest of the government, that she became a power in her own right and someone that even the President had to tread carefully with. Also, the idea that she's the head of some sort of elite separate from the armed forces doesn't seem to square with her relationship with John Savadin's character Seymour in Series 2 episode Trial. Seymour is clearly some high-ranking admiral, so much of a man of the old school that Serverland says... Most of the time, I'm more than happy to see him stay with his beloved Galactic 8th Fleet. This seems to suggest that she is a superior to him. Moreover, there are some times later in the series, spoilers, when we see Servlan ordering ships into action, one of which is the Galactic 8th Fleet, so it must be under her command. Not that I'd given this a lot of thought over the years. Oh no, I have sci-fi in the right proportion in my life. <laughs> Keep up the great work on what has become for me a Dear Diary podcast, Doc Home. So thanks, Doc. Clearly taking some thought to our ideas. I'll leave our listeners to reflect, I guess, upon what we said about Space Command in Seek, Locate, Destroy, and what Doc said, and mm. work out whether you prefer one theory or the other, or indeed have your own theory. Yes. But yeah, thank you for the thought. Interesting. All right, our next email comes from Dylan O'Connell. Hi, Dave and Richard. I'm old enough to remember my dad watching Blake 7 and saw Series D on first screening. I've recently got all the DVDs and had already started working through them one episode a day when I discovered your podcast. I'm loving what you're doing. 
Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Most of the episodes are first time for me, although I'm aware of the broad sweep of the series, so I appreciate the no-spoilers approach. The last moments of the final episode have stuck with me for nearly 40 years, although I haven't seen it since it aired here in Australia. 1982? Maybe you could mention the Aussie air dates, as they were significantly later than the UK. Unfortunately, I've now caught up with your back catalogue, so I'll move ahead and revisit each episode as you get to it. I'm not a Doctor Who or Star Trek watcher, but love Clark and Asimov. The resemblance of Blake 7 Earth to the Caves of Steel is uncanny. Anyway, just wanted to check in and let you know I'm enjoying the podcast and the series. I'll start checking out your goodies podcast as soon as I can work out where to see those episodes that haven't had a DVD release. Cheers, Dylan. Well, Dylan, you'll be very happy to know (laughs) that uh, by the time this has gone out, the full goodies box set will be released. In terms of the air dates, just very quickly, Blake 7 first screened here in early 1979 where they showed Series 1. They then showed Series 2 and Series 3 together in 1980. In late 1981 and across the first sort of half to two-thirds of 1982, they repeated all of Series 1, 2 and 3. They then showed Series 4 here in late 1982 and across into 1983. And they then gave Series 4 its final repeat sort of late 1984 into early 1985. And they're the only times it's ever been shown on free-to-air television. It did briefly come back, if anyone remembers, the Galaxy Cable Service, which was the very first one, which was part of Optus, in the mid-1990s. It did appear on there. But no, Blake 7 then did reappear here until the rise of Foxtel and indeed the UK TV channel some years later. But there you go, that's a potted history. There is a few more interesting little things as they drop episodes for events in each state and whatever. But uh, that's a very quick overview of how it was shown here. But we have been putting up the Australian air dates in the descriptions on the podcast. Ah, yes, we have. Them. Yep. So yes, you we can have. find them there. Yes. Our next email is from Anita Laganova. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Apologies if I haven't. Just wanted to say thank you for great and enjoyable Blake 7 podcast. Well, thank you. I'm not on Facebook or Twitter, but at least I can send emails. I'm a new recruit, have only watched Blake 7 this year. 40th anniversary hype got to me and want to find other people who are also loving this show. So it was great to stumble on you guys via Making Blake 7 Twitter. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. You had me with the web and character discussion. Your comments on Avon and Kelly and I'm interested in your work had me in stitches. I love this moment (laughs) in the web too. And automatic reaction, of course. As for the scene when Blake is hiding the fuel cells and he and Avon are being interrogated by Gila and Navarro, it's another great character moment for Blake and Avon as Avon actually trusts Blake with his fate and doesn't reveal the cell's location even when being kind of tortured and threatened with death. And Blake chooses Avon over the decimers, of course. Of course. But I've listened to the rest of your podcasts and now I'm hooked. Also, please give a shout out to blake7online.com. I think that's the Horizon website. It is, yeah. Yes, and yes, we should give them a shout out actually because they are now 40 years young. They started almost immediately after the series went to air. And yes, they have been a great resource over the years. Yeah, so thank you for that email and I'm glad you're enjoying. Mm. All right, uh, shorter email this time. Uh, This is from Chris Talbot. Hi guys, enjoyed the first two podcasts. Love the TV show. Took some great memories and story-driven sci-fi. But my all-time best thing was the Tupperware box supercomputer Aurac. <laughs> <laughs> it's a box of flashing lights. <laughs> so I've made a little two-minute soundscape with Blake 7 sounds and FX from Aurac episodes. Thank you for that one. And our next email is from David in Manhattan. Hello there. I just wanted to say a quick hello and tell you this is a first for me. I came to podcast kind of late. Every time I found a review show on something I like, it has always been long underway. I know that feeling. As a result, I'm either catching up or unable to take the ride with the podcasters because I've already seen the show being reviewed. That is, until Spacefall. 
I was literally just considering watching Blake 7 for the first time, since I'm a big science fiction fan as well as a reasonable person who prefers British TV over American. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought first I'll try to search in my podcast app for Blake 7, doubting there'll be anything for me, and lo and behold, there you were, all shiny and new. I'll be watching along with you guys. Well, pretty much. I saw the third episode last night. Blessed! (laughs) (laughs) I haven't time to write more just now, but I want to say hello, thank you, and I'll write again. Please do. Yeah, best to you both, David, in Manhattan. So thank you for that. And it's interesting to hear we have actually got fans who are coming to Blake 7 for the first time or the first time in a long time, which, yeah, justifies our no-spoilers approach. Yeah, that's right. And finally, we have an email from Nigel Bromley. Gentlemen, thank you for a great podcast. I really enjoyed listening to your thoughts and observations as I drove home on a dark English winter's evening. And I'm really looking forward to being in your company for the next couple of years. Yes, it will actually be, be a couple, couple of years. years. Yeah, yeah. Yes, as we travel through the part of the galaxy populated by mankind. I think one of your regular articles, look, it was the 1970s, is a stroke of genius. Thank you. <laughs> All the way back, I'm always struck by the flared trousers that were typical of off-the-shelf stock common at the time. And the shoes Blake is wearing look like hush puppies. My school teacher at the time, Mr. Jones, wore. Yeah, they are very 1970s footwear, I think. I'd also like to hear your thoughts on the music. The theme tune gripped me as a child, and the closing notes were like nothing I'd heard before and felt very futuristic. Lots of symbols in the crescendo, but yes. And the incidental music I love. It really adds to the threat and the tension. Hopefully you'll find the uh, discussion we've just had about Dudley Simpson interesting. And he goes on... I've been a fan since I avidly consumed the very first episode, back when I was around nine years old. I was lucky enough to grow up in Stratford-upon-Avon, home of the RSC. So I got to see a bearded Gareth Thomas walking around my hometown. I singularly failed to ask him for his autograph. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, great work, chaps. All the best. Thanks very much. No, thank you to everybody who's written in. Yeah, that's great. And keep the letters coming. Please. So the final thing I just want to say is, in a minute or two, Richard, what are you expecting or looking forward to in Series B? That's a bit of a loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, obviously the first thing is we have to resolve the cliffhanger. It's probably no major spoiler to say, look, the production crew decided that they would do more of a, a series narrative in the second series. And look, how that narrative played out is quite fascinating to watch. And there is a lot of scope in there probably for, you know, fan canon to come into it. Series B traditionally has probably been my favourite of the four seasons. Okay. So I am really looking forward to sitting down and going back through this again with probably slightly, you know, finer tooth comb, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, no, bring it on. Yeah, Series B is not my personal favourite. I do hold it in very high regard, but it's mm. not my personal favourite. I'm looking forward to a couple of things. One, how the series changes once Terry Nation stops writing all 13 episodes. Yes, true. Uh, so he writes the next one, Redemption, and then we're on to our first once not written by him. I'm looking forward to seeing how the dynamic between Blake and Avon goes from here, mm-hmm. and indeed between Avon and Villa. Mm-hmm. I'll be very interested to see where Jenna goes from here, whether it is a bit of a tick up or it really just is a stand and slow decline. Yep. My memory is that it is a tick up, but maybe the memory is playing tricks, as I mentioned earlier. No, so yeah, look, that's the thing. I mean, having found season one went up in my regard watching it again. Yep and being fond and holding Series 2 already in high regard, I'll be interested to see whether it improves, stays the city, or maybe diminishes a bit. Yeah, okay. I'll be honest and say Series 1 and Series 2 are probably my two favourite seasons. So I will be interested to see how that plays out over the coming weeks. So a lot to talk about. Mm. That brings us to the end 
of our season wrap up. Look, hopefully you found this entertaining and a bit of an interesting diversion I'm just slogging through the episodes. No, we'll be back very soon with Redemption, which I'm yes. really looking forward to. It's actually one of my favourites. There you go. But until then, I've been Dave. I've been Richard. Resume course for Space World. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. Gotten something, the prediction has still been made. Blake!